Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 4 and we'll read from verse 1 and we'll read down to verse 21 and then we'll uh, jump over a bit and just read a little bit after that. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 1, let's hear the word of God. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord, concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he hath sinned, a young bullock without blemish, unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head, and kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood, and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the caul above the liver, With the kidneys it shall he take away, as it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering. And the skin of the bullock and all his flesh with his head and with his legs and his inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burnt. And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord, concerning things which should not be done, and are guilty, when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin, and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation, And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord. And the bullock shall be killed before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall bring of the bullock's blood to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord, even before the veil. And he shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, that is in the tabernacle of the congregation." And shall pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take all his fat from him, and burn it upon the altar. And he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for a sin offering. So shall he do with this. And the priest shall make an atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. And he shall carry forth the bullock without the camp, and burn him as he burned the first bullock, 
It is a sin offering for the congregation. And we'll just turn over into chapter 5, and we'll just read uh, a few verses from verse 14. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks, with thy estimation by shekels of silver, after the shekel of the sanctuary, for a trespass offering. And he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto, and give it unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. Amen. We'll end our reading there. And trust the Lord on his blessing to that reading of his holy words. Well, this evening I want to come to our last study on the offerings. And tonight we're considering these last two offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering. Ideally it would have been best to have looked at these last two offerings in two separate studies, to look at them individually. Um, But um, as I won't be back for a number of weeks now, it seems sensible just to wrap the series up rather than dragging it out any further. So I want to consider uh, these two offerings with you this evening. I want to consider a number of things about these offerings. Um, But I think it would be beneficial just before we do that, just to say a couple of brief uh, general comments. The first thing I want to do is just note a number of differences here. Difference firstly between these two offerings and the ones we've already considered, and then to notice a difference between the two offerings themselves. So firstly, just by way of introduction, a difference between uh, the sin offering and the trespass offering and the ones we've already considered, the burnt offering, the meat offering, and the peace offering. And you'll recall uh, that the burnt offering, the meat offering, and the peace offering were described as sweet savour offerings. They were a sweet savour unto the Lord. You remember we had that repetition of that phrase each time in Leviticus 1, 2 and 3. And those offerings, as we were thinking about them, were primarily concerned with acceptance and worship. The offer came primarily as a thankful worshipper to the Lord. He was giving something that was sweet, something that was pleasant, something that was acceptable to the Lord in praise. That was the the main idea over those three. There was, of course, allusions to sin in those uh, offerings, but the main thing was it was acceptance with God and praise and thanksgiving. But here in these last two offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering, the offerer comes not as an accepted worshipper, but he comes as a convicted and a guilty sinner. They come as one who has sinned against God. They come knowing that they deserve wrath. They know they deserve judgment, the judgment of God. And so they're coming seeking forgiveness, seeking pardon, seeking atonement. And so there's this difference between these first three offerings and then these two that we're considering this evening. The offerer comes as a sinner to God. But the second thing I want us to notice is a difference between the two offerings themselves. Uh, In the sin offering, the focus is mainly on sin in general rather than specific acts of sin. If you read chapter 4 all the way through, you'll notice that it just talks about sin, the person who has sinned, 
sinned against the Lord. It doesn't give really any specific acts. You find that, just look in Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 2, if a soul shall sin through ignorance. There's not an actual single sin outlined there. Whereas in the trespass offering, focuses much more on individual and definite sins. Just look, for example, in Leviticus chapter 6 and verses 2 and 3. It talks there about committing a trespass against the Lord, and it talks about a lie unto his neighbour. It talks about taking away by violence or deceiving your neighbour. Verse 3, it talks about you know, finding something that was lost and then keeping it. Um, you can see there there's all sorts of things about deception as well. These are individual sins. Here are specific sins. And I think the, the reason for this difference is to highlight the difference in our own lives. The difference between our sinful nature and our sinful actions. We are sinners by nature, aren't we? We are, as David rightly said, we are shapen in iniquity and in sin did our mother conceive us. Paul argued this too, didn't he? You think about how he talked about how sin came through one man and that we're all in Adam. And because of our sinful nature, because we have this, uh, it's passed down to us, because we're all from the line of Adam, we then are sinners in practice. We sin, don't we, in thought, we sin in word, we sin in deed, we sin by our acts of commission and our acts of omission. And I think that these two offerings here are a reminder to us that we need both aspects to be dealt with, to be in fellowship with God. We need not only to be forgiven for what we've done, but we need to be forgiven and cleansed from our very natures. Our very inner being needs to be dealt with as well. That's why, of course, Christ... When speaking, speaking to Nicodemus, he tried to highlight this, didn't he? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, thought that all you had to do was sort out the actions. But then Jesus says to him, no, ye must be born again. It's your very nature that needs changing. We need to be made new creatures in Christ. And I think this is what these, there's this difference between the two. That's the primary focus of these two. One is your nature, the other is your actions. Both need to have atonement, both need forgiveness, both need a radical change, as it were. Now, with those two points in our mind, I want us to then to look at these offerings in a little bit more detail. And again, we're doing so tonight with particular reference to Christ. We're thinking of Christ as our sin offering, Christ as our trespass offering. And uh, like last week, uh, each point that I've got this evening is just a single word, and I hope that that word will help us and aid us in our memory of the, the truths that are contained in these chapters here. And the first thing that I want us to notice, uh, particularly from the sin offering, is this word expiation. Expiation. That's a, a sort of a, fan, a fancy theological term, but it simply means the removal of sin. The doing away of guilt, the taking away of a person's sin. And this is what we see particularly here in this sin offering in Leviticus chapter 4. The offering was offered up to the Lord by the offerer so that his or her sin and guilt might be removed. You look at that in verse 2 of chapter 4 there. If a soul shall sin through ignorance... 
It says there, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, if a soul shall sin. The offering was a sin offering. Now, you may remember that in our previous studies, as we've gone through and read most of Leviticus 1, 2 and 3, you'll find that there at no point was the word sin or transgression or iniquity ever mentioned. In actual fact, the first time we ever find the word sin mentioned in Leviticus is here in chapter 4 and verse 2. And the word doesn't appear until Leviticus chapter 4, but then in Leviticus chapter 4 it appears 31 times alone. And so this offering is about sin, and it's about the removal of sin. And as I said a moment ago, it doesn't mean there aren't allusions to sin in the previous offerings. We thought about that, particularly the laying on of hands, confession, identity, substitution and so on, the bearing of sin. But the focus here is much more on sin and much more on guilt and its removal. And I think that all of us here tonight, we can immediately see how this points straight to our Saviour. Christ was our sin offering, wasn't he? He died to remove and bear our sin. And we could just turn to so many places in the New Testament that point out this doctrine, couldn't we? Let me share some of them with you. You don't have to turn these ones up, but you think of Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, He gave himself for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Remember that wonderful passage? That he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Think of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. That he tells us there that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Romans 4.24, he was delivered for our offences and raised again for our justification. Hebrews 10, that wonderful chapter that speaks about the perfect, the one sacrifice of Christ. Remember what it says in verse 12, that he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Remember what John the Baptist said, John chapter 1. He sees Christ coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we could just turn to so many places. We've been thinking a lot, haven't we? Referenced a lot Isaiah chapter 53. The whole passage is speaking about Christ bearing our sin and our iniquities, taking the chastisement for us. Christ was made sin for sinners. Christ is our expiation, isn't he? The one who's removed our sin from us. But as Christians, we don't just leave it there, do we? Christ isn't just our sin offering. In a sense, we can't just leave it there. There must be something practical that flows from this this doctrine. Well, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, I think we'll begin at verse 21, just to put it in a bit of context. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 Peter says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow in his follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And in verse 24, who is it says, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree? There's the expiation. There's the removal of our sin. He bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. 
You see, what flows from this doctrine of, of the fact that Jesus bore our sins is that we should now be dead to sins and we should live unto righteousness. It's the same thought that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 6, isn't it? You remember the great argument that Paul brings there. Verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. And you go down in the chapter into verse 10, for example. He says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, we've been, our sin's been removed and so no longer do we live in sin and for sin, but we live unto righteousness. You see, when we struggle with some sin, we have to remind ourselves it was Christ that died When we toil with the flesh, we have to remember that Christ was our sin offering. So this is a prayer that we can pray for ourselves tonight and pray for each other that we may live more and more unto righteousness. Isn't that our desire? Isn't that what we long for? I don't know about you, but you have things, you commit a sin and you think to yourself, it, it horrifies you and you think, no, I should be living unto righteousness. I should be living more and more for Christ. Christ died for our sins. Our sins have been removed. There's expiation. But the second thing I think that that the sin offering points us towards is separation. Separation. As we are reading this passage, you may have noticed a number of similarities between the sin offering and the ones that we've already covered before. Just if you go back to Leviticus chapter 4, You'll have noticed that an animal was brought in verse 3. Again, it was without blemish. And that animal was killed at the door of the tabernacle. We find that the blood is sprinkled. We have here actually a lot more details concerning the bloods. It's a lot more elaborate, a lot more detailed than any of the previous offerings. It was sprinkled seven times, we read there, before the veil of the sanctuary. Some of it was then put upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense. And then the rest of the blood that was left over was poured out at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering. I don't want to dwell particularly on those details this evening, but it's worth taking the time just to think through the significance of why the blood was placed in those three different areas. But in verses 8 and 9, we have the details there that are exactly the same as the peace offering from last week. You notice that, how the inwards, the fat, and so on. And verse 10 tells us this is exactly the same as the peace offering. And that was to be burnt upon the altar of burnt offering. But when we come to verses 11 and 12, we're given some unique pieces of information. Pieces that are very significant. You notice what it says there in verse 11. It says, In the skin of the bullock... And all his flesh with his head and with his legs and his inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock, shall he carry forth without the camp. The body of this animal was to be taken away. It was to be taken outside the camp. And it seems to me that the offering, the bullock here, is so identified with sin that it could no longer remain within the camp. It has to be taken away. It could not be burnt even in the presence of the Lord. It has to be removed. It has to be put away. There has to be a separation between God, who is holy, and this sin offering. 
There has to be distance. Someone has calculated that in the days of the the wanderings in the wilderness, that the distance to go from the centre of the camp to outside the camp would be about four miles. Four miles to take that beast out. And what a graphic illustration that would have been of separation, but this, this separation between God and sin. So hateful is sin and so loathsome that the sacrifice must be banished, as it were, from the very camp before the presence of the Lord and before the people. Remember how Habakkuk says that the Lord is of purer eyes than to behold evil and he canst not look on iniquity. And this beast we read here was taken to the place where ashes are poured out. Bonner in his commentary says that this was meant to exhibit a type of hell. And again, friends, do we not see our saviour, our sin-bearer? Was he not taken without the camp? Wasn't he the one who was cast out as one that was unfit for Jerusalem, unfit for the presence of the Lord? The writer to the Hebrews actually brings this point up in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12. And I think it's one of these parts of God's word in the New Testament where the writer's saying, look, Look back in your Old Testament. It's all been fulfilled. Christ has done it all. Even the little details, even the things that you would have just read over and skipped over and you perhaps didn't even think there was anything significant there. Christ has done it all. In Hebrews 13 and verse 12 it says, Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gates. Christ was led outside the city to be crucified and and the reason is so that he might fulfil the type perfectly. He might be our sin offering. And I think it's just marvellous when we read something like that, how God's plans and purposes are just always fulfilled so perfectly. He carries out even the minute details. It's an intricate puzzle, as it were, isn't it? And the writer here draws our attention to it just in case we missed it. But again, in... There's a response here. In Hebrews 13, verse 13 says, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. You see, if Christ endured the cross, if he suffered outside the camp for us as our sin offering, the point that's being made is shouldn't we be willing to be reproached? Remember what Peter said, that we should be reproached for the name of Christ. That's what he said in 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 4 rather. We should be willing to take the reproach of Christ, to be identified with him, as it were, to suffer outside the camp. Are we as God's people willing to, to bear that reproach? Are we willing perhaps to be called names because we're Christians? Are we willing perhaps to suffer persecution? willing to suffer the abuse of people around us because Christ is our saviour and our sin offering. Peter says in that verse, happy are ye, happy are ye, if you suffer, if you're reproached for the name of Christ. Well, may we be a happy people as we're reproached for the name of our saviour. But the third thing I want us to notice this evening is revulsion. We've seen expiation, we've seen separation, but I want you to notice revulsion from uh, this passage this evening. Go back to those verses 11 and 12 again, those unique details in chapter 4. 
And I think we can read those verses in a very sort of dry way. You know, the skin of the bullock and all his flesh and his head and so on. And we just read it and we sort of pass over that. And yet I think if we look more closely at this, at what's being described here, we'll see that this, this scene that's in front of us is absolutely hideous. It's something that is odious, it's disgusting. A scene that really should invoke a response of revulsion. Those who saw it should have been horrified at what they saw. I want you just to try and imagine this scene with me this evening. Remember we said right at the beginning that these offerings were sermons in action. They were graphic illustrations to them. And here you've got this animal that's been killed, its blood has been shed, its inwards have been taken out, the ones that were with the fat and so on, they've been burnt, and now you've got the rest of this animal. You've got its skin, you've got its flesh, you've got its head, you've got its legs, its inwards, even its dung. And that animal is placed upon a cart. And that cart begins to make its way through all the people, out of the, the, the tabernacle, past all the tents, past all the people, all the families, out to the outside of the camp. What a horrific scene that must have been. I don't want to be um, overly graphic, as it were, this evening, but it reminds me of when we used to have to get the knackerman out on the farm. Some of you here will understand this uh, more than others here, but if we ever got a knackerman out to collect a dead cow, they would come up and they would reverse the wagon up and they would lower the tailgate and, and inside would be all sorts of animals in all sorts of conditions that were dead and it was grotesque. And the smell as he lowered the tailgate down and the flies and it was horrific. It was a, an unpleasant scene and that's what's here in front of us. This is the equivalent of the knackerman taking the cart down through all the people. And what we have here is just equally grotesque. And it's showing to us the very nature and the grotesque nature of sin. How awful sin is. Remember the beast was seen as sin itself. The laying on of hands. This animal was now the sin offering. It was sin itself as it were. And the vileness of the scene was showing to the Israelites of old the vileness of sin. And again we don't have to jump too much from these verses to Calvary, do we? When we read Luke chapter 23, when we read Matthew 26, 27, when we read of the spitting and the mockery and the buffeting and the scourging, when we read about how that crown of thorns was placed upon him and the nails and so on, do we not get, are we not getting a picture of the vileness of sin? Friends, if you want to, as it were, know how awful sin is, then go by faith to the cross. And I think this is something that we need to do more and more. We need to realise the sinfulness of sin. Friends, when we hear of sin, are we horrified? Do we show an abhorrence to it? Do we have a hatred for the things that God hates? I think if we're honest with ourselves, too often we either laugh at sin... Too often we try to disguise sin, too often we excuse sin or we ignore sin or we brush it under the carpet. We can be so indifferent, can't we, when we should be shocked and horrified. That should be our response as Christians. And I think here's another prayer that we can, we can pray tonight as we come around the throne of grace. Lord, make me more sensitive to sin. Help me to be more and more horrified with wickedness. And Lord, help me to delight more and more in righteousness. Remember 
the words of the hymn, breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. That's a prayer that we can pray tonight, isn't it? Oh Lord, give me a love for the things that you love and a hatred for the things that you hate. The final word I want to consider this evening is moreover in the trespass offering. And the final word is restitution. Restitution. Just turn into Leviticus chapter 5 and that little passage that we read there, verses 14 through to 16. Just notice what it says there in verse 15 and 16 especially. It says, If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord... And he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks with thy estimation by shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. And he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing and shall add the fifth part thereto. The person you see who trespassed, the person who was guilty, the word could be translated in that way, the word trespass, it's the same word as guilty. This person who was guilty of a specific sin, they had to pay and make amends. You notice that's a big difference between the trespass offering and all the other offerings. There had to be restoration. If you go into chapter 6, you'll notice that in verse 5, particularly they were to restore what had been taken. And there was a price that had to be paid and not only was there this price, this shekels, but you notice they had to add the fifth part. So if you had, for example, taken ten shekels, then you had to pay twelve. And this restitution, you see, this restoration came at a cost to the person who had sinned. There was a price that they had to pay. And again, we don't have to jump Dewey far from the type here to the anti-type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ paid a great price at Calvary, didn't he? It was a price that cost him. It was a price that cost him his life. You remember how he said that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What does Paul tell us twice in the letter to the Corinthians? He says, ye are bought with a price. There was a price that had to be paid to free us, to set us free from our sin and from our trespasses and from our iniquities. And you have to remember, of course, that what that price that was paid, it wasn't silver, it wasn't gold, but it was the precious blood of Christ, wasn't it? The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spots. What a redemption, what a restitution has been paid for by Christ for us, us who are sinners. We owed God a life of perfect obedience we owed him a life of righteousness and homage and praise and instead we've sinned because of our sin and our trespasses we're in debt to God aren't we remember that parable the Lord Jesus Christ told of the man who owed that great sum and yet was forgiven and the price is too high isn't it too high for us we just sung that in that hymn that Roger chose 199 there It was a price that was too great. Thy holy law fulfilled, atonement now is made, and our great debt, too great for us, he now has fully paid. 
And Philip Bliss got it right in his hymn as well, didn't he? I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. And verse 2 says this, I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save. In his boundless love and mercy, he the ransom freely gave. And you remember what the refrain says, Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debts and made me free. It's wonderful, isn't it, when we think about it, what Christ has done. Paid our debts. It leads me on just to say something as I as I close tonight, and I wonder if you noticed this as we were reading this passage tonight, but there's a little refrain that keeps repeating itself throughout chapters 4 and 5 and 6. It's a refrain that just keeps reappearing, and it really outlines, really, as it were, the achievement of the sin offering, what is accomplished by the sin offering and the trespass offering. Just go back to chapter 4. And verse 20. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 20. He says, And the priest shall make an atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. And you know, that little refrain there at the end of verse 20, it's repeated in verse 26, it's repeated in verse 31, it's repeated in verse 35. In chapter 5, it's repeated in verse 10, it's repeated in verse 16, it's repeated in verse 18. What is accomplished? Atonement and forgiveness. Atonement and forgiveness. That's what we need, isn't it? As guilty sinners, we needed atonement. We needed to be made one with God. And we needed to know the forgiveness of our sins. And the offerer, when he came and he offered this, he knew that as he watched that animal being carted away, he had atonement and he had forgiveness. And we see Christ going to Calvary. And we're trusting in him and our faith is in him. We know that we now have atonement. And we have forgiveness. Thanks be to God, we should say that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, isn't he? And just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's just come before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and our gracious Father, O Lord, we thank thee for these offerings that we've considered over these past weeks. O Lord, we thank thee how they point to our Saviour and how they point to his perfect life and his death at Calvary. And Lord, we thank thee that we can come, and as it were, we can lay our hands by faith on the Saviour. And Lord, we can confess our sins. And Lord, we thank thee that the accomplishment of his sacrifice at Calvary was that we now have atonement with thee, and that we now have forgiveness, that we're pardoned, that we're cleansed from our every sin. Father, we pray this evening, may we, as we reflect upon these truths, may our hearts well up in love and adoration and praise to Thee. Lord, may our hearts burn in love for our Saviour. Hear us, we pray, for we ask these things in the precious name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.